You're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. On today's episode, I'm joined by Blake Thomas, Director of Engineering at No Red Inc. We talk about some of the more human aspects of software projects, such as change management, delegation, and teams. Software Unscripted is sponsored by Blake's and my employer, No Red Inc. No Red Inc. makes software for English teachers, and we're on a mission to help all students harness the power of the written word. We're also hiring, so the next time you're thinking about a change, take a look at noredinc.com jobs. And now, change management. Okay, I'm here with Blake Thomas. Blake, how's it going? Uh, it's going pretty good. I am in my kitchen staring out the back door at dogs, so that's always a plus. I love that remote lifestyle. Your dogs are awesome. Like every time we have a meeting, there's like a 50% chance that some dog related <laughs> activity will, <laughs> will come up in the background. I don't know how often I walk around my house with my laptop cradled in my arm while I'm opening a door on mute yelling at a dog and then I unmute to talk. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a whole thing. <laughs> yeah, totally. So you and I have, have done a lot of collaborating over the years. And one of the things that we've had to do a lot of collaborating on is change management. Like you have an organization and something needs to go from state A to state B. And it's not like programming where we can just call a function on it. It's like actually <laughs> takes time. And and so I'm kind of curious to get your thoughts around like what are the important aspects of change management or like what are the challenges that aren't necessarily visible if you're, because you've been an IC, you know, all the way up to like manager, director, what are the things that you didn't realize about change management that were hard back when you were an IC that now that you're at, like at the director level, you see more clearly? There are a lot and I'm probably going to discover some as I go through it. But I think probably the biggest one, I imagined it as an IC as present a rational case. Everyone will look at the rational case and nod and say, oh, yes, clearly, that's obviously the thing we should do. And the entire ship pivots as though it were, uh, you know, just a whirling dog turning on a dime. Yeah, I'm going to continue with the dog thing. <laughs> and the reality is that I'm going to use the term and I'll explain it. But for for any change management conversation, small, large or in between, it is immediately, inevitably a crucial conversation. And so what do I mean by that? There's a book called Crucial Conversations. If you haven't read it, I definitely recommend it. But it defines a crucial conversation as a conversation where emotions are high, where opinions differ, and where the outcome is very important. I think I got that right. If I didn't, we'll look, you know, I encourage you to look it up and correct me. And the reality is that we invest so much of ourselves, so much of our identity in, I am a this type of programmer, or I am at this type of organization, that the moment you go to folks in this type of organization and say, hey, you know how we've done this for a while? We're going to start doing that. People immediately have feelings and opinions, and they're concerned about that. And I think if you don't account for that, then you're going to undermine your ability to be effective as a change agent. So I can talk about a couple different ways that that manifests, but it really boils down to Think about the people in addition to making the rational case, because the rational case is really only half of the presentation that you have to make, right? So I can give some examples if that helps. Probably one of the most obvious ones, you know, Richard, you were talking about how we've been collaborating a lot. At 
no red ink. We're talking about moving away from red. I say talking about we're actively working over time to move away from Rails towards Haskell on the back end. That's a big, important change for us. And we can talk about the advantages of that or not, but in a lot of ways, the advantages that you can put on a spec sheet that you can make the rational case for are only half of the discussion. The other half is that you have a group of folks who have feelings and opinions and strong emotions. Part of their identity is wrapped up in what they produce for work and you know there are considerations around that too and whether or not that is always the healthiest thing right. but humans <laughs> humans we have to human well right and so if you ask folks hey i know that you've been writing code for this rails application for a long time and i know that we have a project that we want to get out by some target date that we've established you know back to school whatever it is but I'm gonna need you to write that in Haskell. All of a sudden, there are a lot of emotions that come up for folks, and so you have to account for that in some way. One of the biggest ones, and one of the most common ones, I'll say, is a fear of loss of productivity, right? Folks hear about this new technology, they say, but I know so much about this other thing that we were doing, and I know so little, or I know less about this thing that we would like to do, I'm worried that if I have the expectation that I'm gonna hit some kind of a target date, that I will be less productive and unable to deliver. And so that is a kind of existential fear or worry. And so what you can do is you can set clear expectations about, well, expectations about expectations. Yes, we talked about this target date and yes, we wanna hit that target date, but we know that to do that, we're gonna to have to adjust some other expectations, either cut scope or change the target date or flag that there's some risk that we may not hit that target date, whatever it is. You make it clear to folks that, hey, this is not the existential threat that the back of your brain, the alligator brain is telling you, like, be afraid of this thing. So that's probably the, the biggest factor there. There are others, of course, but. Yeah. One of the things that I've always struggled with is there's a sort of innate tension between Two things that seem to be helpful in change management. Mm -hmm. One is giving people more context up front, mm -hmm. like trying to provide more transparency and just like explain the reasoning and so forth. And also sometimes it's not just like telling people context, but also just like involving them in the process of, you know, coming to the decision in the first place, which, you know, there's like various degrees of that that can be done or not. So the upfront investment and then also wanting to give people more of a heads up before the change starts. And often those are intention if there's like some amount of time pressure where it's like, well, we really want to get this started sooner rather than later. Like the sooner we can get this change started, the better. Like with Haskell, that's like a multi-year thing. So that's not, wasn't a big sense of like urgency to get that started. But I can definitely think of other things. Like another one that comes to mind is our interview process. So we had this initiative recently to shorten the length of our interview process, like our technical interviews. And we wanted to try and find a way to basically because we were getting feedback from candidates that for lack of a better term, some people were dropping out of our process because it was taking too long to get through it. And so the goal was how do we change our current process to get to a point where yeah. we're happy with the signal we're getting from our interviews and that we're you know evaluating people reasonably, but we accomplish that in less time. 
So because we're losing candidates, like the sooner we can get that change rolled out, the better. But the more context we can provide people and the more we can get people involved in the change up front, the nicer it's going to be for them and the more smoothly the whole process is going to go. So I've always sort of struggled with that. Like a, a really common piece of feedback that I get is, hey, I wish you'd given me more context about this or like more mm-hmm. upfront. But also another common piece of feedback is I, I wish I'd gotten more of a heads up about this. <laughs> and I wish I wasn't, you know, fighting out about this with like less time before the change starts. Now, granted, I usually get more of the former than the latter. But of course, the other thing about providing more context and stuff like that is that it just, it takes time to like present all of that. Absolutely. It's not like I can just like, CP dash R what's in my brain into a document (laughs) (laughs) just shift that got to actually like write, you know, and at least for me, that that always takes a while. Oh, if only our, well, I think uh, there are at least a dozen Star Trek episodes I could reference there, but yes, I know, I know (laughs) for any listeners, as Richard knows, I'm, I'm a Star Trek nerd, but anyway, what kind of things do you struggle with when it comes to change management? So I think that is a big one too, and it's complicated by the human factor because one of the things that I have observed is that the stronger the emotions are around a change, or another way to frame that is the more fearful folks are about a change, Mm -hmm. the more adamant the critique is about both of those things. So in other words, when folks are you know, on a scale of one to 10, about a four on how concerned one way or the other they are. You can tell them, hey, I know we said we were going to use this, but we're going to use that. Their response is usually something along the lines of, eh, okay, that's fine. (laughs) But if they feel very adamant about it, so just as an example, you know, Nord Inc's a very mission-driven company. And so if I were to announce, hey, I know that we care deeply about ed tech, but we're actually pivoting to work on cryptocurrency, I think that I would have a revolution on my hands potentially, (laughs) you know, because of the mission alignment there. But the point that I'm getting at, when folks are very deeply invested in the current direction and you announce or you communicate to them, hey, we're changing direction, when they have that realization, wherever you are on that spectrum of advanced heads up versus more context, they're going to ask for more of the other. You could give them a perfect document that lays out exactly why you're making the change, exactly why this is strategically necessary. I don't think you can make a pivot to cryptocurrency make sense, but otherwise you could (laughs) give them all of that context up front and they will say, I wish I had more of an advanced heads up because this is very finished. On the flip side, if you tell them the moment you have the thought, hey, we're considering this, we think it's going to be necessary, they will have all of the questions all at once. And it's less about, and I think this is the important thing to realize, because those two desires aren't at odds. It's really about, and what we need to do as someone who's trying to affect that change is recognize what the need that isn't being met that is being voiced is in that moment. And of course, I'm not suggesting that you try to reach into someone's brain. Of course, you need to actively listen and ask some questions, but it isn't always about advanced notice or context. It's about the questions that they have about what this change means for them. In some cases, I think there's also an interesting question around how much to get different people at like different levels of the organization involved in a given change, not necessarily because 
you think that it will make a big difference in like what the ultimate outcome is, but just so that like it, it's almost as a tool of like conveying context is like getting people involved. Mm-hmm. And then even if they end up coming to the same conclusion as like, oh yeah, we need to go in this direction as you know, what you did. Yeah. Just the fact that they were involved and got to go through that, that same exercise themselves means that a, they're more bought in because they've seen like a thought through all the different like alternatives and be like, okay, this is the best one. Or in some cases, this is the least bad one. Mm-hmm. But also, I mean, there's always the chance that like, if it's me, the chance is much higher that you got it wrong, <laughs> right? <laughs> like I get stuff wrong all the time. And so quite often, if I get other people involved, you know, in the decision itself, they will come up with something that I missed. And then maybe we end up going in a different direction. But that also has to be traded off against looking at like the big picture of like, what is this change costing to the organization? It's like, how many different people's mm-hmm. time are we taking up for this decision? And you have to make a judgment call of like, is this decision big enough that we want to get multiple people involved or like more people involved? If so, how many? At the extreme end, you could say, let's take every single decision and put it up to a vote. And we'll just like, before we do anything as a department, we'll just be so super democratic about it. And we actually used to, to some extent, do this. Like when I joined No Red Inc., it was like five people at the company. And I remember there was a point where we said, we need a director of engineering because <laughs> this whole like voting on everything and doing everything, like everybody's involved in every decision is just taking up way too much of our time. We just have too many decisions coming through the pipe. And like, we need somebody that we trust to be like, look, just make the call some of the time and then use your judgment mm. to involve us, you know, <laughs> if you think it's like warranted. But, you know, then of course, like having at other points in my career been in that position of like making those decisions, I, I definitely struggled with like answering the question of like, how many people should I get involved? When, how much time should I spend prepping context for them versus just kind of throwing them in the deep end with me and being like, let's just swim around together and, you know, figure this (laughs) out, which is arguably what some people really thrive on, but also like arguably a waste of their time because it's like, well, maybe I could have spent like an hour of prep and saved four people with half an hour each that the the math works out that I could do better depending on the number of people. So yeah, yeah, that's always another trade-off I've struggled with. (laughs) For for one, I want to highlight that Marco Polo is one of the funnest games ever. And so why not? No, I (laughs) could. There is a design principle that I love to expand the scope of and just apply in areas that it doesn't belong, but it's, it's really brilliant which is this idea of the principle of least surprise. In other words, however you are designing something, and I think that processes fall under the category of design and change management is something that you design. One of the things you should probably optimize for is the least surprise. The thing is that the least surprise doesn't mean that you tell everyone the moment that you're thinking of a, some, of a change of something. Mm-hmm. It also doesn't mean that you give them a fully fleshed out documentation, sort of well-organized with perfect information architecture and all the questions answered and, and all of that either. There's a structure to that kind of approach where you, you have to think about, okay, who is my audience and how can I minimize how they're going to be surprised? But even more than who is my audience, you have to actually differentiate in your audience. And this goes back to the the idea of having everyone vote on everything, which it sounds great until you're trying to choose where to have lunch, by the way. Like, (laughs) 
<laughs> get a group of eight engineers in the middle of any major city and say, okay, where should we have lunch and enjoy the next half hour of conversation? <laughs> so think about what is the role of each party to that discussion? And, and there are different frameworks for this. A really common one that folks use is RACI, R-A-C-I, and I forget what the R stands for. One that we use at No Red Ink is DACI, which is driver, approver, consulted, and informed. And so think about who the person driving that decision is. Maybe it's you, maybe it's someone else in your organization. Think about who ultimately has the authority to approve that decision. I mean, as much as I may want to pivot the company, that's not my decision, and I, and I don't because I don't. And then there are the folks who are consulted. These are the folks whose input actually should weigh into the ultimate decision. And then there are folks who need to be informed. They are people who their input may not have the weight that someone who is consulted would have, but they do need to be aware of the decision. The biggest confusion lies in the conflation of those last two groups, those who are consulted and those who are informed, because those two groups can have strong emotions about a decision, but it's not always the folks in that last group who are, who are in a position to influence the decision. And so really clearly articulating those two groups is really important. Yeah, a great example of that is like when you have cross-departmental stuff where it's like, you know, this is within this department and like we're going to inform the other departments of what we're doing because it might affect them perhaps indirectly. But it's not like we're going to run everything by everybody in the other department. Like we have to have some autonomy to do that. Yeah, the reality is that I would never want a situation where someone in, let's say, a product department or a sales department said to me, are you sure we should be moving in the direction of Haskell? I mean, I suppose they could say it to me, but that is still a technical decision ultimately. So, Daisy reminds me of another related topic that that also is, I found pretty challenging, which is like figuring out when to and when not to delegate and like which parts of things. So as an example on this interviews thing, like I was sort of the, the driver of that project and we have three technical interviews. And basically I found some people who were interested in revising them, you know, with these new constraints. And so as far as like the implementation of those, I swapped it and I was like, I'm not the driver of these, you know, y'all are in charge of like figuring out what the interview should be, but I do want to be like the approver. And right. I was like participating in the design discussions and like at the end I was like, cool, I think these are good. And it was a very collaborative process, which was great. But there have been other times where I've thought, oh, I'll just, you know, delegate this to this person and it'll go fine. But then I realized that like in order to, well, there's two failure modes there. One is I don't succeed in giving them enough context and they go and spend a bunch of time and they come back and I'm like, oh. This isn't going to work. Yeah, I failed to mention to you that this one thing was really important. That was in my head, but it, I didn't see P-R it successfully to you. So like <laughs> you spent a bunch of time doing the wrong thing. And now if I just done it myself, nobody's time would have been wasted. Or the other failure mode is I spend so much time trying to figure out what is exactly all the context that you need to have to do this. And that it ends up being like, oh, this would have been like a lot faster if I did it myself. Sometimes I'll be like, well, I think that it'll take me longer to write out the context than it would to do it myself. But it's worth it because then you'll have the context and like, you know, that you'll be more involved and that's better for various reasons. But of course, trying to make that call is 
a form of everyone's favorite activity, estimation. Like I have to estimate, like how long is it going to take me to like figure out what is all the context necessary to do this, you know, to the level where we get an outcome that, you know, we actually want and trying to guesstimate like how does that trade off against or how does that compare to how much time I think it will take this other person to do it. And then, oh, I thought of another failure mode, which is that this, I guess, is is somewhat of like a sub failure mode of like not giving enough context. But sometimes it's like, the person spends way too much time on it. Like they're like, I really want to do a good job at this. And they're like, I spent all day on this yesterday. I was like, oh no, I, this is like, I thought this was gonna take you like an hour. You know, <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I wasted your whole day. We didn't need that level of polish on this. But again, like, you know, that's one of the many aspects of context that like needs to be explicitly conveyed or else there's, you know, potentially much worse outcomes than just doing it yourself. Oh yeah. So whenever I hear the phrase failure mode, I immediately think, what do our error messages look like there? And and in this case, it's it's actually relevant. As you were describing that, my immediate thought was, one of the things we talk about when we talk about delegation is what level of delegation, right? And so delegation, and I forget who came up with this. Well, it doesn't matter. We can look up the book later, maybe. Typically, when we talk about levels of delegation, we're talking about five different levels. And the The higher levels of delegation are basically, well, the highest level would be, hey, Richard, can you accomplish this thing? You don't need to update me. It's just literally handing over a thing and you don't need any any level of, did it get done because you assume that it just gets done because you asked someone. Sure. The next lower level, so four would be, hey, Richard, can you do this thing and let me know uh, when it's done and how it went. Yeah. And as you go down and get all the way to that lowest level, it's, hey, Richard, I need you to do exactly this thing and then exactly this thing and then exactly this thing. You specify out the steps. Right. And then I need you to report back to me about exactly what happened. And so typically when we talk about levels of delegation, it really boils down to what is the competence of the person that we're or the party that we're delegating to. But but that's actually misleading because that's not the only factor. The other factor is ambiguity or uncertainty. And one of the things that I find is whenever that ambiguity or uncertainty goes up, it typically makes sense to lower that level of delegation. In other words, to say, okay, let me know you do things like you time box it and you say, take a look at this. If you spend more than an hour on it, come back and we'll have a we'll we'll discuss. Or you say, I want you to take a look at this first and let me know how it goes and then we'll go from there. The point that I'm getting at is you need good error messages for your delegation, right? If you have any reason to suspect that that delegation is going to fail, then don't delegate at that highest level. Bump it down to a lower level and try to get more specific. And you can do that in response to that ambiguity or that uncertainty. That's actually, that's usually the way I address it. The other thing I was going to say is, For any large change, as with any kind of work, you can break it down into smaller changes. All of these characteristics for the larger change will not necessarily be true for those constituent smaller changes. So to take the interviewing example, right? Like you were driving the larger change, but for some of those individual interviews, you were not driving the smaller change, you were delegating. And you were delegating at a level, it sounds like about a level four, maybe a level three. And so you were saying, hey, take a run at this. Let me know how it goes. Consult me if you have 
you know, any concerns or questions or, or keep me in the loop on the design, those sorts of things, right? But those are constituent parts of the larger thing is really what I was getting at there. There are other things that you can do too. So, you know, I've been a part of organizations where we were changing the dominant technology that we were using. We talked about Haskell. Two companies ago, I was at a company that was going from Ruby on Rails to Go for all things for a lot of services. And so the larger change belonged to the CTO. He was actually the, the driver, if you will, who was setting the expectation for that. But for the smaller constituent changes, because the CTO isn't involved in every project conversation, he can't be. That's that, you know, they can't be. That's it's too much. You have to have folks who are driving those smaller constituent parts. And so the DACI or whatever framework you're using changes, the level of delegation should be set appropriately for the level of ambiguity. And there's different sources of ambiguity, the competence of the person compared to the skill demanded by the task. But there's also the level of certainty that we have about the direction or the question at hand, right? And then the last thing I was going to say about, uh, you talked about, we all voted on changes and then at some point we decided that was inefficient and we needed a director. Consensus decision-making is exceptionally effective for groups that are exactly four people (laughs) and frankly, no other size of groups. The only time that it makes sense to use some form of majority rule or consensus decision-making is when the decision is not just important, it's actually existentially critical, right? In other words, it impacts at a fundamental level everyone involved. All other times, it makes sense to have a more efficient decision process. And it reminds me of a thing, a realization that I had recently, which is, and this is relevant for organizations that are growing or scaling, which is at the early stages of the growth of a company, transparency and awareness go hand in hand. Because if we're being transparent among five people, everyone knows everything, right? And so we, we learn in a growing organization that transparency and awareness go hand in hand. But as an organization grows, as you add a whole bunch of people to this endeavor, awareness and transparency start to drift apart. Just because a decision is transparent, just because it's documented and available, just because you can ask questions about it, doesn't mean that you're going to know about all of the goings on around the entire company because we've multiplied those goings on by however many people we've added to the company. And I think being really clear eyed about the difference between transparency and awareness, as well as how you are mindful of those different audiences, those who are informed, those who are consulted, et cetera, is going to make your change smoother overall as your organization grows. Yeah, I buy that. This is the only company I've worked at that I've seen go from like really small to, you know, much bigger. I definitely have seen, I don't know, lots of struggles and stumbles with that over the years. It definitely doesn't just happen. And yeah, you're right. Like size is a big factor there. Like it was like when the engineering team was three people, it was not at all a problem that we just like everybody knew everything and we just like made decisions democratically. Mm -hmm. It was fine. It was only once we grew to a certain size that that stopped being awesome. (laughs) Yeah. Quick fun fact, apropos of nothing, you'll note that I said that consensus decision-making, the size for that, where that works is for the eagle-eared. I don't know that that's a thing. Listener might say, well, what about three? 
there are actually some psychological studies out there that suggest that the worst size for a team is actually three because anytime opinions differ, but there is some measure of consensus, the breakdown is always two to one. And that one person feels somewhat isolated. Huh. I see. Interesting. Yeah. So teams of three underperform compared to any other team size. Two is better. Four is better. Five is better. Doesn't matter. And so my advice is generally try to avoid teams of three. Well, I have an idea. What if you just always have the same opinions about everything? Then oh, team of three works great. Too. Yeah. Yeah. How's that CP minus R project uh, for it. brains going for you? <laughs> Solved it. Mission yeah. accomplished. Anyway. Yeah. So I'm curious, based on something else you just said, so you have now worked at two different companies that started specifically with Ruby on Rails and then migrated to a different language that was, among other things, type-checked and ran faster. So Go and Haskell. I'm really curious to hear like your comparison of those two. I know the Haskell one's still ongoing for us, but just kind of hear your thoughts on like, you know, what went well, what didn't go well, what could have gone better, you know, lessons learned from both of those transitions. I think that both of the transitions have suffered early on from a clearly stated and commonly understood vision. And so I go back to that transition from Rails towards Go. And one of the big things that we struggled with was the question of, okay, but when do we write it in Rails and when do we write it in Go? And that is the fundamental question for any kind of technology shift. When do we do the old thing and when do we do the new thing? How do we sure. make that judgment? Because unless you are doing some kind of immediate cutover where you say no more of this and all of that, the question is going to come up, right? And sure. that cutover is, is impractical in almost all situations. So, I say almost all. There are some edge cases, of course. But the biggest thing that you need is a simple to keep in one's mind heuristic or guideline for when to choose one or the other. Because the reality is if the guideline is complex, if it's hard to remember, if it's any of those things, then not everyone will remember it all of the time and it will undermine the ultimate goal, the ultimate vision. And so one of the things that I suggested we institute and we ultimately did when transitioning from Rails to Go was here is the guideline. Unless you have a good reason, write it in Go. And the way that worked was it changed the friction or the incentive structure. I sometimes refer to it as change the default. You basically say, unless you have a really good motivation that you can write up, that you can share with someone, that you can make the case for, mm -hmm. choose the new technology. And the reason why that works is because in all reality, we are always and we should be trying to make sure that the work that we're doing has value, right? Of course, yeah. And if I think that writing something and using the old technology, whatever that may be, is going to have enough value to justify the investment to write up that decision. Well, that's a pretty good indicator. That's a decent heuristic for, yeah, maybe we should choose that old technology for this instance. Uh -huh. Because I've changed the incentive structure. The reality is anytime you're trying to make that change for a very long time, unless you make some kind of guideline or some kind of heuristic like that, the incentive is actually to use the old thing. Why? 
because there's so much structure. There's so much scaffolding there. I don't have to build the whole thing. I just have to slot my little piece in with these other little pieces and it can live and be inefficient until its heart's content, right? Uh -huh. But if you change the incentive structure, if you change the default, you add a little bit of friction, then folks will start to say, okay, well, I don't have a good reason for wanting to write this in Ruby other than it seems like it would be easier. Now, that's something I've definitely seen sort of throw a wrench in the works of the default idea, which is it's not maybe so much that it's easier, but rather that the size of the project varies dramatically based on whether or not you mm -hmm. get to make use of the gigantic existing code base. It's like, if I want to do this relatively small feature in isolation, if I do it with our legacy code base, it's going to be, you know, this many lines of code. But if I want to do it in the new code base, well, there's all this missing surrounding infrastructure that just hasn't been ported over yet. So there's this dependency there of like, mm -hmm. well, first I have to port all this stuff over and convert all that to make it available. And then I could do the relatively small thing. And then it makes it hard to justify when it's like, well, what's my estimate for this project? Is this going to be like 5X? And granted, it's not like 5X because this individual thing takes a lot longer. It's, it's really a scope creep. It's like this project requires doing, you know, 4X <laughs> worth of other stuff, which then yeah. doesn't need to be done ever again. It's not like a linear multiplier, but it does make it harder to do that like analysis on a per project basis. Like which one should I use? Part of the problem with any of these changes is enumerating all of the things that you need to do. And one of the easiest ways to discover what you need to do is to have someone enumerate the reasons why it doesn't make sense to do it with a new way. One of the fastest ways to enumerate those reasons is tell people that you have to enumerate the reasons why you want to do it in the old way ah. if you're going to do it in the old way. And so you wind up with a blueprint of, oh, if we address, if we attack these, you know, 15 different areas of code, that's going to give us 80% coverage for the new code. And so there are a lot of things you can do with that. You can, depending on the structure of how your organization plans projects, you can say, you know, we're going to allocate some innovation days or hack days or whatever. Maybe you have a team that part of their job is to invest in infrastructure and build some things out. Now you've got a punch list for projects for that team, right? Right. Worst case, you have a list of the reasons why you have a problem shifting to this new technology. And you can take a step back and say, here are the problems with shifting to this new technology. We need to resolve this before we can make meaningful progress. So that's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is that we have this saying, and I, I suspect you're going to chuckle when you hear it, but it's a thing we throw around a lot, which is important, but not urgent. Aha. <laughs> Ibnu. Ibnu, gotta love me some Ibnu. Ibnu, important but not urgent. One of the realities is that so much of our work, well, let me actually just a little bit of preface here. A lot of people and a lot of organizations really confuse urgency with importance. Mm -hmm. Because the thing that seems really important today overwhelms the senses. It seems like the thing we have to tackle. But the reality is that Something may be important a week from now, a month from now, six months from now, whatever, but it's not urgent right now. So we put it on the back burner, put it on the back burner, put it on the back burner. Yeah. We need to 
invest in those things because while it may not be urgent today, six months from now, it's going to be urgent. Right. Right. And so this kind of shift falls into that IBNU category. And one of the things that we talk about, and this is, I think, a really important realization, and you can formulate it for your organization or for yourself, however you want, protect time for things that are important, but not urgent. Yeah, I definitely uh, have been sort of repeating that, not using those exact words, but like repeating that message of like, you know, if we ever want to get to a point where we have successfully transitioned, there's going to have to be some projects along the way that are inefficient when considered locally. Like they are just going to be, yeah, maybe this project does take five X as long, but like that work has to get done or else we're never going to make the transition happen. And in those cases, it's not even necessarily something like, you know, if we don't do this now, it's going to become an emergency later, but rather that if we don't do this at some point soon, the longer we wait, the more we're paying for it. Because we had another episode on the database apocalypse, which, you know, kind of was a, a really something of a wake up call of like, oh, we, we've mm-hmm. really like put this transition off for too long and now we're in kind of deep trouble. <laughs> I can give you two kind of stories that illustrate this. One of them is charming and has nothing to do with software development. It actually has to do with traveling the countryside of England. And the other one has to do with software development. I'm going to give you both of them. So uh, about a decade ago, I, I went to England. I'd never been with my wife. It was sort of a trip we planned. She had been to England before though, and had even driven in England. So for anyone who isn't aware, the the roads are flipped. The cars are flipped. You drive on the, on the right side, driver's side is on the right side. You drive on the left side, right? When we picked up our car, because we were taking this road trip, she said, you know, I've driven in England before. Why don't I take this first leg and then you can drive later? And I didn't think anything of it. And I said, sure, that sounds fine. So we drove from London to Brighton and it was a little hectic, but it was fine. And then we had to drive later from Brighton to Bath and she took that and it was mostly flat and it was a little longer and hectic. But at every stage, the sentence was always, well, I've driven more in England or I've driven more recently in England. This doesn't seem like a great time for you to step in, right? Uh That was great until we were driving through the Carnarvon Mountains, which by the way, if I could just recommend Never trust a GPS because it doesn't show the relief map. Moving on. (laughs) So we're driving through the Carnarvon Mountains on these narrow English roads in this very wide car. And she literally is white knuckling the whole time, tears streaming out of her eyes. And at one point says, you should look outside because it's probably very beautiful, but I just can't right now because of the sheer kind of sides. And that was a failure because it would have made a lot more sense for us to invest in me understanding how to drive. I tend to be a more easygoing driver early on. But by the time we got to the stage where she's literally gripping the steering wheel for dear life, it had become... The downside got a lot bigger, yeah. Exactly. And so an earlier investment would have saved us a lot, both in urgency and you know overall effort. So that's the charming story, the, the real story. So, you know, I talked a little bit about that transition to go. That actually happened after another big significant change at the same company. So this is a fintech company. And actually the company had built out at one time what was the largest Rails code base in the world. Wow. The thing is that they had done that right around like, I don't know, 1.0 of Rails, which anyone who's looked at 1.0 just walk away. It's not, it's concerning. So 
the point was that we had at that point invested so much. Now this predates me, but we had invested so much in just changing the core internals of Rails to make it work for our use case, to build out the software. It wasn't really Rails anymore. It certainly couldn't be upgraded with Rails. And so we were perpetually stuck on what was in essence a fork of Rails 1.2.8. Oh, wow. Even though this is around the time that Rails 4 was in the works and about to come out, right? Yeah. And because at every stage we had said, well, we're just going to go for a local maxima. We're going to invest in the thing we need right now. We had found ourselves in a position where what we had was frankly unrecoverable in that sense, right? Like, yes, you could go into this kind of like spelunking effort. We even paid the creator of one of the alternate Ruby implementations to come and help us kind of disentangle this situation and made zero progress with that, frankly. And so what we did is we took an honest stock of where we were. And to be clear, I am not always a fan of replatforming. I think oftentimes replatforming choices are premature, Uh but we took a look at it and we said, look, this code base is, is what it is. It makes us millions of dollars and it should continue doing what it does. But if we're going to start rolling out new products, if we're going to start growing the portfolio, we need something that is going to be able to support that. And so we started a project right then to essentially rebuild the entire platform, not as an exact replica, but rather from an outcomes, from a functionality standpoint, and arrived at a fairly different architecture that was, I wouldn't call it a service-oriented architecture. I would call it more like a federated services architecture. Uh-huh. But the point was that each one of those independent services, now, mind you, we were still using Rails at the time, but each one of those independent services could be maintained and upgraded and modified and whatever in some measure of isolation. And we had lots of problems we had to solve about how they interacted and how we test that. But the point that I'm getting at is ultimately IBNU, right? Like if you're always shooting for that local maxima, then you're going to miss the need for a paradigm shift until it's so late in the game that it's going to be expensive. Yeah, I buy that. I'm remembering um, another big transition we did at No Red Ink, which was from JavaScript and React to Elm. Mm. And one of the things that made that a lot easier, honestly, was that we just didn't have, relatively speaking, that much React code to begin with. I mean, at that point, I think we had two years, maybe three years worth of React code. I don't remember how many lines of code it was, but I mean, we have like, you know, our whole code base is like a little over a million lines of code now. And I don't remember how much of that is Rails, but definitely multiple hundreds of thousands of of lines of, of Ruby code, probably at an order of magnitude less of JavaScript back then. So we didn't have this problem, you know, as often of like, if you pull on this string and you want to convert just as one thing, you're going to find out there's a whole lot more back there that needs converting. And the other thing that made it a lot easier was that on the front end, you have these very natural boundaries of pages where it's like, okay, here's a page. And granted, in some cases, a page might be pulling in a ton of code, you know, for just shared code that that's used a, a lot of pages to keep the look and feel consistent and all that stuff. But quite often you can find like, you know, one particular page that's, you know, just, just doing a particular thing and doesn't need that much shared stuff. Oh yeah, and also interops a little bit easier because you have Elm can do JavaScript interops. So we could just like even replace one part of one page if we needed to. But it's a lot harder to say like, well, I want to just replace this one route because then you have the question of like, well, okay, but like who's in charge? Like, 
where does it go at the beginning? Like you have to have some sort of load balancer or like, you know, say Rails is in charge of routing, but then sometimes it delegates to like a separate Haskell server or something like that. At which point, how does authentication work? There's just a lot more machinery involved in trying to do that incrementally than there is on the front end where it seems, I don't know, more straightforward, I guess. Yeah. One of the things that I've done there, because that's another change, man, I didn't even think of this one when, when we were talking. <laughs> At one point, we actually built this. So there's uh, two companies ago. We built a thing that we essentially stood up in front of our Rails service that served as a kind of pass-through proxy, if you will, or a reverse proxy, where basically any request to it, if it didn't match a particular pattern or a lookup, it would just pass through to the service behind it and then forward the response in essence. Sure. And what that let us do was incrementally replace some of the pieces of the core service without mucking around with the core service itself too much. That can be a really powerful pattern. One of the things that's true about Rails, and this is Rails is great for rapidly prototyping an idea and getting something off of the ground and even going through those first stages of product market fit or what have you, right? Where it starts to get dicey is that Rails predisposes you, and and really I'm talking about active record here, but it is all of Rails, but active record (laughs) is kind of brutal in this, really predisposes you to have zero separation of concerns. Why not relate all of those databases directly with foreign keys? Why not, young programmer? And one of the things that happens when you do that is you wind up with this kind of spaghetti code, this thing over here that calls this thing over here and then counts these objects over there and then does this thing. And it really defeats ideas like, and you know, some of these are popular, some of these are not. They go in vogue, they go out of vogue. But like, if you go back and read like the original domain-driven design book, It talks about this notion of services and repositories. And a lot of folks now think of the word service as this independent thing that we deploy separately and it lives somewhere separate on the network. But really, when you read that book, what it was talking about was encapsulation. So one of the things that I would say is if you're going to build a thing with Rails starting now, please protect your future self. Avoid (laughs) creating those unnecessary relations Be mindful of what your repository for a particular page is and keep it constrained to that. Wrap some of your active record objects in plain old Ruby objects to give yourself the leverage to pry out active record later when you're as successful as your Twitters and whoever else that need to get away from Rails and give yourself that leverage. So. Yeah, like modules and their dependencies. I mean, one of the really nice things about them is that it's, you know, whatever the language calls it, you know, having a way to specify boundaries and saying like, this chunk of code only depends on these other things and not on the entire universe is a pretty big deal in terms of being able to keep things manageable as you try to make changes. And that's one of the reasons why more experienced programmers talk so much mess about like Rails magic auto loading, because it just puts it all right in front of you and you have every incentive to try and use it and not any incentive to try and be really focused about what those boundaries are. Fair point. Anything else we should talk about before we wrap up? I think one of the things that a lot of people get frustrated by, and I think I mentioned this earlier, is, hey, I've made this rational case for a change. And everyone seems really resistant. What do I do? Uh-huh. How do I affect this change in my organization? And I highlighted this idea that it was a crucial conversation, that it was a human conversation 
where you have to address not just the rational case, but also the emotional side, the the existential side. Right. And I want to highlight that that, in a nutshell, is a big part of what successful leadership is. And when I talk about leadership, I'm not necessarily talking about, oh, I'm going to be a manager. I'm talking about as you move up the individual contributor track or into the manager track, there are certain skills that you need to build that are actually very comparable, if not identical, from one to the other. And it really has to do with communication. It really has to do with bringing people along with you. And also, all of these things add up to effective change management. Because what is change management? You need to communicate the need. You need to communicate the process and the steps. You need to design the process and steps. And then you need to execute. And all of those things, at least 90% of those things, have to do with that same skill set. And so I think that like, for a lot of folks who are sitting there frustrated and they're like, hey, I really want to see my organization switch to this technology or that technology, and I made the rational case. My thinking, my advice to you, and, and this is something that I share in a lot of other cases, is you could be the best programmer in the world. Also, just as an aside, most very senior programmers take more joy in deleting code than writing new code, just as a footnote. But anyway, moving on. Focus on how can I be a more effective communicator? How can I bring folks along with me? How can I be an effective leader in that way? And that's actually going to give you the skills to advance your career regardless of the path, but it's also going to solve your more immediate problem, which is how do I bring about change in the organization that I'm in? I was speaking with a leader recently, and we were talking about you know what they would look for in a company when they were considering a new company. And they said something that really stuck with me, which was, oh, I, I really only care who the CEO is and what the domain is. And I was like, really? Huh. That's, that's all you care about? <laughs> and their response was, yeah, I mean, I can change everything else. <laughs> and that to me is a really interesting fundamental thing because the reality is if you are that, effective at communication, at bringing people along, you can help your company grow into the company that you want to work at if you invest in those skills as you grow your career. So I wanted to kind of highlight that just to bring it back to that that individual contributor who's been at the company for six months and raises their hand and says, hey, we should try this framework or I'd love to see us use more Elm. Yeah. You can make the technical case and that's valuable, but think about your audience and how you bring them along with you and where they fit in that spectrum. That's really good advice. Well, on that note, I think that's a great place to wrap it up. Blake, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. This is a nice discussion. I'll be honest with you, Richard. It was just an excuse to hang out with you, sir. (laughs) Awesome. Appreciate it.